Well, hey, 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 Exponential. Welcome to Frontlines, our bi-weekly podcast, video cast, uh, where we have conversations about the current issues that are facing pastors and church planters. And really what we want to do uh, every other week is to really get on the ground and talk about some of the most pertinent things that affect you, your ministry, leadership development, multiplication, church planning, all of those things. But also we want to talk about the big things that are shaping the way that we think about like leadership development and how we're going to do mission and church planting in the future. And so all of that stuff is on the table. We get to talk about all of that. Uh, every uh, every other week we have a very special guest that uh, uh, our co-host Peyton Jones and I, we get to interview and really pick their brain. And this week I'm really excited to introduce uh, our, our guest and I would save that for just a little bit later. But uh, our topic for today is, man, it's one that is uh, one of the biggest, uh, really, um, things that I, I think that people uh, know that uh, Hispanic and Latino American uh, church planting leaders have been at the forefront of church planting for the last several decades. We released a research report um, two years ago through the Sun Institute that really showed us the, the quantitative data that Latino American church planters are actually planting effective evangelistic churches with less amounts of funding compared to the um, to the mainstream. And that, that brings up a lot of different uh, feelings. Number one, we celebrate that work and we celebrate what God is doing through that. But it also leads to a lot of questions about how do we then uh, get in better situations where we can fully fund and really come underneath those who are effectively reaching the loss through church planting. So that is a big part of the uh, what we'll discuss today. If you're a church planting organization, your uh, church uh, isn't yet thinking about how to raise up and to come underneath and come beside and underscore the work of uh, Latino Americans uh, in ministry in general, but specifically in church planting, this is the episode that you really need to pay attention to. So I am really honored to uh, um, uh, introduce our guest today. I'm going to introduce uh, David, and then we're going to jump into what we do every week, uh, and that is we start off with a fun question just to kind of get to know one another a little bit more. But our guest this week is the Reverend, soon-to-be Dr. David Rosa, who is the um, uh, founder and pastor of Cruciform Church in Hollywood, close down there to Miami in Florida. He is also the founder and president of the Real Talk Mentoring Program, which provides personal leadership development opportunities for youth and young adults all across Miami and Broward County area. And so, hey, brother, uh, David, man, I'm so uh, thankful to have you. Peyton and I just really want to say welcome and thanks for hopping on here. So, Thanks for being here. And um, every week we start off with a question just to kind of, it allows Peyton and I to banter a little bit, but it also allows people to kind of get to know you at a little bit more of a personal level. So um, I'm gonna ask Peyton first, because Peyton is like between Peyton and I, he's the music guy. You can tell from his shirt right now. I mean, he's got that uh, shirt, Deftones. And so our question this week is, what kind of music has influenced you the most and why? So Peyton, go for Ooh. it. Man. I think I have a, a sense already. I, you know, I'm kind of omnivorous, to be honest. I think that's why the Deftones um, might be my favorite band. They're a little bit of everything. They kind of took a genre and they blew it out into everything else. They'll they'll sing the Smiths. They'll take, you know, Sade. I mean, it doesn't matter what they do. But my very first album, I'll start with my musical journey in like 20 seconds. Hall & Oates, 
rock and soul part one, um, white guys who sang like black guys, yeah. right? I mean, that just got in there. Stevie Wonder. I mean, I grew up in seventies. Any of that kind of stuff, Earth, Wind, Fire. I mean, that that stuff as a young guy, I was like, oh, what is this, right? That was just was what was playing. But as I got older, I discovered punk. And I like the old punk, right? I'm not yeah, like one yeah. of these Green Day guys. It's like right. Clash. It's the old stuff, the classic stuff. And then from there, anything that screams hard and loud and passionate, I like it. Wow. Did yeah. you get into Screamo when that was a thing? No. 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 Okay. Definitely so, not. But not that, I, I also not like a little bit of Love and Rockets, Bauhaus, all that. The post-punk yep. stuff is good as well. Wow. All right, man. That totally fits you. But I do understand you a little bit more now. <laughs> <laughs> Brother David, what about you, man? This oh my is gosh. Well, to who you are as a person, and then we'll talk about your ministry and vocation. Well, listen, I love this because we couldn't be any, a, any more different in some sense. Uh, <laughs> But no, um, yeah, for me, it's going to have to be um, the rebuilding era of hip hop. So basically after the greats, uh, the biggies, the, uh, the yep. Tupacs, um, and the big L's and them died, uh, the, their protégés would have been the Jay-Z's, the uh, big puns, the Jada Kisses and the DMX's. Yep. Um, and so some call it the, the golden era or the rebuilding era. So those are going to be my guys from the mid-90s to the early 2000s. Yeah. Uh, and then I'm also going to be a real big salsa uh, guy. And so, um, you know, the Hector Lavos and the Jerry Rivera's Fania All-Stars, um, which in, some, in, in a weird way really make up like even what we were talking about as the, uh, uh, the, the, the urban Latin um, culture, which mm -hmm. was heavily influenced by uh, the African-American community and the Puerto Rican community of New York City in the early 90s. And so, yeah, that's yeah. going to that's going to be my move, man. Well, I mean, I, I want to get into that, too, because I know that that's that's a personal story. Yours, too. Um, if I had to put my early upbringing together, it would be a crossover of gangster rap. So Tupac, Biggie, Warren G. So, hmm. you know, before your guys, David, which is this is an age thing now, too, because I'm older than David. Oh, gosh. So. Oh gosh. <laughs> so, <laughs> You know, you got Warren G, Snoop, uh, you know, NWA, Public Enemy, and then uh, Cross with Metallica, uh, Guns N' Roses. So that that would be my early roots. And then, um, yeah, man, if you bring it up to speed to now, I mean, these days, like, I'm, I am all about, like, you know, um, Co-Train, Miles Davis. Ooh. I'm chill, dude. This is what I write to. Okay. This is my PhD nice. music. This is how I uh, get things done. So that's my vibe right now. So, but hey, doesn't the, theology go together? That is a yeah, little known oh secret. Oh my gosh, man. I mean, there's so much similarities between jazz, theology, and philosophy. Like, just Listen, for me, it's going to be, for me, it's going to be Neo Soul. That, that'll be Robert Glasper and Eric Badu and them. Man, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, Dave, thanks for being on, brother, man. This is uh, really looking forward to this episode. It actually helps. Peyton and I, we're, we're launching a, a new season upcoming soon. And so this is a great way to, to close the season with you. Um, but I, I, we would love it if uh, you can talk to the listeners, everybody that's on. Um, you know, there's a, there's a, a room filled with people that are listening to us right now. Uh, give us a little bit of your background, your ministry, and then specifically how you came to plant Cruciform Church. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much for this opportunity to be with you. I count it a great honor. Um, as I mentioned a moment ago, uh, I'm a 
I'm a, at this point, I guess I would call myself a New Yorican South Floridian. And so I uh, was born and raised um, in Sunset Park of Brooklyn, New York. It was a predominantly urban uh, Puerto Rican Caribbean neighborhood, um, born and raised there and uh, very influenced by the hip hop culture of the early 90s. Um, then in 1997, um, my mother, um, she passed from this life to the, to the next after a short bout with, uh, with breast cancer. And so uh, my family migrated from Brooklyn, New York City uh, to South Florida, um, where we've been at now for over 20 years. And so, um, uh, you know, we think of South Florida and you think of the beautiful beaches and, and, and all of that kind of stuff. And um, all of that is great and we enjoy all of it. Um, uh, but there's all, obviously, like in every city, um, a, a broken side. There's beauty and then there's uh, brokenness. And uh, after moving to South Florida, I became re uh, re acquainted, if you would, uh, with the beauty and the brokenness of the South Florida streets real quick. And so here in South Florida, you may have heard of the um, just the cocaine epidemic. Um, uh, you might have heard of the cocaine cowboys and carrying on. And um, all of that um, lives on on the streets still to this day. Uh, so real early on, uh, after moving to South Florida, got acquainted with, um, with, with cocaine and, and the whole uh, South Florida uh, drug scene, if you would. Um, uh, got into all sorts of mess um, in, in my days here, my early days in and out of juvenile detention centers and uh, failed pregnancies and dropped out of the seventh grade and, and all, that, all that stuff. Um, and I was headed down, uh, headed down the wrong way fast, uh, but I'm glad that there's a God who runs much faster uh, and is a much better pursuer of me than I am a um, man, just a runaway from him. And so, uh, man, as I just kind of continued uh, drowning in my own sin and my brokenness, um, my older sister got tired of kind of watching me self-destruct. And, um, and so my family has a uh, long legacy or heritage in the Pentecostal tradition. Um, and so when she knew nothing else to do, she knew to call on the name of the Lord and she knew to invite me to church. Um, and so, uh, and so she, she invited me to church and uh, I finally got tired of telling her no and hearing her ask me again. Um, and so uh, I did uh, what was expected of me. I popped a couple of Xanax bars, got real high and went and sat on the last pew of the church uh, and, and passed out, uh, got there, went to sleep, um, woke up with maybe five minutes left in the sermon. The preacher was preaching out of first Corinthians chapter one, uh, my home church pastor, Pastor Kike. And, um, he begins to uh, close out his sermon going back to the text. Uh, where's the wise person, the teacher of the law, the philosopher of this age. Um, uh, and, and then just kind of expounding on how God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wisdom of the wise and how he does that through the foolishness of the preaching of the cross. And the way I share my story every time as I say this, I woke up and when I woke up, I really woke up. Uh, the spirit of God did a work in me on that day. Um, I came to faith in Christ, uh, turned from my sins toward him. Uh, in an instant, I came to faith um, and, and, and through that church, uh, and the gospel that was preached, my life uh, was forever changed. And so uh, if there was anything that I knew when I came to faith is that I knew I loved the streets. I, I knew I loved everything about it. I loved uh, the drugs. I loved the women. 
Uh, I loved the sex, the parties, the money. I loved all of that. Or oh, I really liked it, let me say. Uh, and what happened in my story is I came to love Jesus more than I liked all of that. Um, but I knew that if I didn't do something major, um, that I would just go back to what I knew. Um, and so my pastor offered me, uh, essentially gave me an invitation to spend as much time as possible in the church building. Um, and so from the moment they would open the doors to the moment they closed the doors, uh, I was allowed just to spend time in the church. So again, I dropped out of the seventh grade because I got in trouble every time I went to church. So I said, you know what? I can't go to church anymore, pastor. I mean, I can't go to school anymore, pastor. Um, you know, I, I got, I got to drop out cause I don't want to get in trouble. I don't want to do all the things I like. Uh, he thought I was crazy and I think I was halfway. Um, but instead what I did was I went to the church every day and I studied the Bible. I prayed. Um, the church became a house of refuge for me. Uh, it became the place where I learned how to read. Uh, it was the place where I developed any leadership capacity that I have today. Um, and where I learned uh, the skills that I use uh, today. And so through that, um, uh, again, Pentecostal church, uh, come to faith radically, um, get baptized real quick, and I'm immersed into ministry, uh, begin to lead youth and uh, teach Sunday school and even have some occasions to preach. Uh, but what I knew right away was um, that this same uh, solution to my life's problems and brokenness. I needed to get out to as many people like me as possible. And, and so um, immediately I felt the call to reproducing spaces similar to the one uh, that had become for me a place of refuge. Uh, that led me uh, to starting different outreach ministries, et cetera. And um, through a, you know, there's, there's a whole bunch of details, but um, essentially, at some point, I began to visit a church called Coal Ridge Presbyterian uh, that was founded by the late, great um, uh, Dr. James Kennedy. Um, I began to visit there and they um, meet this, uh, you know, uh, New Yorkian, South Floridian kid with a good story uh, and some experience in ministry. They immediately put the seventh grade dropout into their internship. Um, that led me to uh, taking on a position as an interim benevolence coordinator, which then got me connected with a One Hope International uh, that put forth the Book of Hope all throughout the globe uh, to start a ministry for incarcerated and high-risk youth. And then that kind of, uh, while I was there at Coal Ridge, this is an important part of my story, um, one of the tasks I was assigned was to set up and facilitate a group of church planters that was called Renew South Florida, uh, led by uh, Rick Hunter. Um, they got together, they talked about church planting and mobilizing people for mission. And I was in charge of making sure they had hot coffee and bagels. Um, through that, I got acquainted with church planting. Um, and, um, and then they connected me with Spanish River uh, from where I would be sent out uh, in partnership with Epiphany Camden uh, of, um, uh, yeah, Epiphany Camden under the leadership of Pastor Doug Logan. It was through a hybrid residency that we planted our church. And so now um, on, the, uh, on Easter Sunday, uh, this weekend, we'll celebrate five years of officially being launched, uh, six years on the ground um, for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Yeah. Right on, man. I, I think it's so important that you shared that because the, the, 
the interconnection and the weaving of your of your own personal story, but also what's taking shape there in South Florida, I think is massive because, I mean, uh, this isn't just your personal story, but this is what God is doing across North America through Latinos. And I think it's so important for us to understand that. Hey, let's talk about the gift of the Latino American church. And from your perspective, David, um, what is it about the Latino Christian tradition that's shaping the American church right now? Like some of us, we sense it, we feel it. We know it's more than just demographic and statistics, but there's a shaping of the American church and a big part of that is the rise of the Latino Christ, uh, tradition. So talk about that for a second. Yeah, I love the way you shaped that question, by the way, the gift of the Latino uh, American church. Um, because I think what happens with that or the phrasing of that even is that we uh, acknowledge what so much of our American evangelical uh, churches often miss. And that is that uh, diversity in the body is something that we should um, consider and celebrate and not just ignore or tolerate. Right. Um, and so I think it's so special that you've done that. I think the gift of the Latino American church um, is uh, is is our identity uh, of embodied diversity. Um, so the Latino American, again, um, has an embodied diversity, uh, diversity, which is seen in our DNA. In the Latino, uh, you have a DNA of both uh, being the oppressed and the oppressor. Um, like, that's both part of our story. Um, Juan Martinez, who um, uh, wrote a book recently, he says uh, it's called The Story of um, the Latino uh, Protestant, uh, the Latino Protestant in the United States. He talks about how we can't even really um, put a name to La Latinos or Latinidad. He says, you know, whether you call them, uh, whether you call us Latinos or you call us Hispanics, there's the complexity of imperialism, colonialism, conquest, and racism that's found in there uh, because um, of our. Uh, our, our mestizaje, right? So Latinos are a mixture of, of all sorts of different uh, ethnicities come together. So again, I think the gift of the Latino American church is embodied diversity that confronts and combats um, the separation and segregation that we too often see in the life of the church. The second part of that question, in the second part of that question, you asked, perspective of the Latino American uh, Christian tradition in shaping uh, the American church. And I see that happening in two specific ways. Uh, one way I see that happening is as the Latino American church prophetically calls the American church back to comprehensive expressions of Christian life. In the Latino American church, you find uh, a faith that is marked by repentance and faith. Uh, holiness and joy, faith and work, and a fully giving of oneself for the sake of el evangelio, or the gospel. Uh, one of the things that was recently put out in the studies by Lifeway in the Pew Research Forum uh, that you alluded to a minute ago was how much we've done with so little. Um, the way that we've expanded our resources in order to um, do ministry as effectively as possibly uh, without having so much overhead. And I think that that's a byproduct of this uh, comprehensive expression of the faith that we're going to just give everything for the sake of the advancement of, uh, of the kingdom. Uh, the second way that I think we're shaping the American church is through our contagious 
fervent spirituality. Uh, in the Latino American church, there is an aggressive pursuit of God through prayer and fast, fasting that I think we've all too often miss out on. Uh, now, I'll be careful to say that I think that that fervent spirituality uh, is not exclusive to the Latino American church. I think you see it in the immigrant church uh, so often because of the complexities uh, that we've dealt with. And yet, I think that that's what I would say. I think we're, the Latino American church is shaping the American church as it prophetically calls her back to a more comprehensive expression of the faith and a more fervent spirituality. So what, what are some of the struggles of Latino Americans in evangelical spaces? <laughs> yeah, um, man, I try, I try to be as, uh, as quick as possible uh, with this. I, I think I would say that the biggest struggles for the Latino American uh, in evangelical spaces is uh, the seduction to fully assimilate uh, to dominant cultural norms for the sake of uh, what the dominant culture measures as success. Uh, again, so this seduction into an almost full assimilation. Uh, the reality is that at some point, the system decided to give Latinos the ability to identify as white. So I want to be careful. I don't want to make this just a black or brown and white issue, but I do want to uh, engage the nuances and the realities of the, the systemic and structural uh, realities that we're living in and that we minister uh, through and from. Um, so at some point, Latinos were given the ability to identify as a white, even though we ain't never been treated as such. Um, and many of us Latinos, we drank the Kool-Aid. And, and so what happened is that uh, while we did that, we traded our distinctiveness and prophetic voice that comes from our own ethnic story. Again, that ethnic story of having the DNA of both the oppressed and the oppressor. So we, we traded our distinctiveness and prophetic voice um, to sit at the American evangelicals kids table where, where we eat um, uh, chicken strips while uh, the dominant culture eats ribeye, if you would. Um, so there was an exchange that was made uh, and, and I'd say this, that it's no secret at the kids table, uh, you can only speak when spoken to. Um, and, and you're told what conversations, if you would, uh, you can engage in um, and which conversations you have no business in. And, and so the result of this terrible deal is we've made the dominant culture uh, a view of evangelicalism to be one that is not affected by our own ethnic story, our distinctiveness and our prophetic voice. Um, it's interesting, again, um, in uh, Juan Martinez's book, The Story of the Latino Protestant in the United States, he talks about, in the introduction, I think it is, he talks about um, uh, how the Latino um, views uh, denominational or movements as a secondary issue because of, how, uh, because of the story of how, from the beginning, our expression of spirituality has been marginalized um, uh, as we've been pushed into a full assimilation. And so today where you see Latinos in denominations or in mainline denominations, uh, you often find that they're there for resources, but they engage more with people outside of their denominational tribes who create space for them to uh, more fully be who God created us to be. Um, and so, again, I think one of the biggest struggles 
um, uh, for Latino Americans in evangelical spaces is the reality that we've one been uh, seduced into assimilating and two that we drank the Kool-Aid of assimilation, which no longer gives us distinctiveness um, or prophetic voice. Yeah, that's that's a powerful thought, Dave, uh, David. And I want to point a couple of things out, make sure people don't miss this out. And if you have questions, feel free to drop them in the chat and Brooks them get them over to us and we'll, we'll get as many as possible. But you said a couple of things, David, that I want to highlight because I don't want people to miss. Uh, number one, the complexity of Latino Americans. It's not just one ethnic group. It's not one racial. I mean, there's mestizos, there's mulatos. I mean, there are, there's a different composition there are, are white Hispanics, you know, right? I mean, there's a actual census category for white Hispanics. And um, it's very complex, even when it comes to national citizenship. You're Puerto Rican, uh, right? Which is going to be a whole lot different dynamics from, uh, from Mexicans. And so we have the propensity within our local churches and our denominations to paint a broad brush. Um, and that's, that's, we have to be careful to do that because we can make people invisible in the attempt to, to kind of aggregate the group. I think that we can't miss that. And especially on the local level where you lead in churches, it's tempting to think that you can treat the Colombian the same way that you might do, you know, the Mexican, and that's completely different. Um, and I, I appreciate you highlighting that because, um, what, what, what is happening is that in America, uh, Hispanics are the largest youth population right now. The population underneath 18 right now, the largest bar none is uh, Hispanics or Latino Americans. Uh, you know, Hispanic being the language category, Latino being the, uh, uh, the uh, ethnic um, or the, the national origin. Um, and so it's so important for us to understand this because part of the growth that churches and denominations are seeing amongst evangelicals are actually amongst uh, young Latino Americans. So the fastest growing, you know, denomination, or one of the growing denominations that we all know of is the Assemblies of God, and they are fast growing because of Latino Americans. But the dynamic that you talked about is there's still yet, you know, under representation with uh, national leadership. No, they just they just uh, brought on. Um, uh, uh, um, uh, Chaco, Pastor Chaco. So he's 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 bringing a lot of leadership and diversity to that. But these are the challenges that you're talking about. These are the these are the next steps that we need to really be thinking about at the local and the national levels. Can you help us to think about like, do you think that the mainstream evangelicalism, you know, and I'm not just talking about whites, but I'm talking about blacks and Asians and the the non-Latino. Do you think that we we are actually taking seriously enough the arrival of the Latino American leader yet? Or is it just kind of like, do we get the weight and the gravity of what's happening right now? What are your thoughts? The, the, the simple answer is no. <laughs> um, but but I want to I want to be careful to say this um, again. We we have drank the Kool-Aid. Right. Um, and in so doing, we did trade our distinctiveness and prophetic voice. Um, for the sake of crumbs, if you would. And so that translates into us now not being prioritized, um, for instance, in movement spaces or in church planting, funding structures, et cetera. It's hard to prioritize somebody that essentially um, you forgot exist. If we assimilate so much that, that really we don't have any distinctiveness 
then it's hard to fund that person. You, you can't fund somebody that you forget exists because we've essentially said, hey, we're good being where we are and with the voice um, that we have um, because we've traded our distinctiveness. And so in the same way, uh, when we traded our distinctiveness, now there's no need, for instance, for uh, Latino American ministry consultants. We, we, need, we need black ministry consultants, right? We need white ministry consultants. Um, you know, we need uh, wealthy ministry consultants and some uh, people from uh, impoverished areas as ministry consultants. Um, but, but we don't really need Latino American ministry consultants because we, again, we, we traded our distinctiveness and prophetic voice for crumbs. And so um, I, I want to make that clear. And then I'd say that uh, people don't respect what they don't recognize. Like you'll never respect, again, what you don't recognize. And so if we've, uh, if we've lost our distinctiveness and have become unrecognizable in some ways because we've so fully assimilated, then we're never going to get the respect to get the consultation call or to be put on the board because people simply do not respect what they do not recognize. Um, uh, so again, in terms of your question of, do I think that mainstream evangelicalism is taking seriously enough the arrival of Latino American leaders? Uh, again, how can they? Um, uh, they've forced an assimilation that doesn't allow distinctiveness, and they've dismissed those who haven't assimilated because of distinctiveness, right? So on the one hand, you can't because we've been fully assimilated. On the other hand, if we begin to express ourselves uh, and our Latinidad in our, faith, uh, in our faith and practices and in our churches, then the dynamics of our measurements of success will change. Um, you know, if we're too excited, then we're no longer sound. Uh, if we're too excited, then, you know, our faith is one of emotionalism, et cetera. Uh, and, so, and so because of that, th there's this reality where um, oftentimes uh, we're not appreciated. Um, uh, a good friend of mine, uh, Rich Rivera from the South Bronx, he says uh, that, that the reality is that we can't say that uh, evangelicalism is taking seriously uh, Latino American leadership because there is no uh, clear Latino Americans lead informing or shaping directions or decisions at a large scale in terms of movements. Um, so I think we have a struggle. I don't think we're being taken seriously. And I think there's some serious reasons why. Okay, so let me let me ask this because I'm listening to what you're saying. And of course, I'm the white guy in the room, right? So I'm going to I'm going to ask um, some questions that you know, you're always told there's no stupid question. I'm I'm asking this. I'm with you, brother. I'm totally with you. Um, so, you know, I'm going to ask some clarifying questions, not as a challenge, but really just for clear understanding. So I, I agree with you. I, I think you look around evangelical circles. It is recent that you've been seeing like, you know, here we are talking Daniel representing Asian community. But this is new. You know what I mean? Like it's always been white dudes. So part of as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm hearing and I'm accepting because, you know, this is something I'm not Latino. Right. I'm the white dude. I'm part of the majority culture. Always have been right. Always, you know, always going to be white. But when I went overseas and I was a missionary, my role and my job was to 
assimilate into majority culture as much as possible without holding back, like learning the language, adopting the cultures and practices. Now, I realize that America is not like we're a country of immigrants. So it's a different dynamic. And so what I'm asking is how, where's the line for you? Like, would you say that I've got to maintain my distinction because I'm a Latin pastor reaching a community of immigrants, you know, in Miami, as opposed to someone who's in Duluth, Minnesota, or Duluth, how do you say that? So I don't know how to say it. Um, I'm in Minnesota. I'm in Minnesota and I'm reaching a bunch of people, you know, a bunch of white, you know, blue collar workers. Would you then say, depending on the context of where I'm at on mission, would it change? You know, would you say, hey, I'm going to lose my distinction in that sense, kind of like where Paul says, I become all things to all men. But because of where you're at, it totally makes sense. Or are you saying, no, I would need to maintain this as part of like a multi-ethnic as a church comes together. This part of in a nation of immigrants, this part has to be represented. Is that kind of what you're saying? I know that's a like three questions in one. I, I appreciate that so much, my brother. Um, uh, in the words of um, one of my coaches and mentors, uh, Rob Guerrero of Redeemer City to City, who translated this from um, the, uh, the, the, the ninja theologian himself, Tim Keller, um, I believe that the gospel doesn't make me, uh, Rob would say less Dominican, but that instead it makes me more Dominican. I would say, I, I believe that the gospel doesn't make me less a New Yorkian, South Floridian, but it makes me more a, or more fully a New Yorkian, South Floridian. And as such, I believe that my ethnic story contributes to the glory of God in the world. Because of that, regardless of where I'm called to in ministry, regardless of context, it is important that I, uh, that, that I keep and maintain my ethnic distinction. Um, so for me, I believe that um, the kingdom of God and, and, and in the eschaton, they're going to be people of every nation, tribe and tongue. Uh, and I believe that that reality um, showcases the grace, the beauty uh, and the reconciling work of God now on the earth as uh, Christ brings about the culmination uh, of all of, of, of his gospel. Right. Mm. Um, and so because of that, yeah, I would say no. Uh, whether I was in Idaho, I was in Iowa, uh, Alabama, wherever, um, it's important that, that I, uh, that my, I was talking, I was doing a, uh, uh, one of my crews, a, a group, um, yesterday, um, and I had an Italian brother with me and we were talking about holistic ministry, et cetera. Um, and, um, and one of the things that he said in light of our teaching, in light of some of the same conversation, he says, man, I, I, I feel more white now. Um, right. And, and he said that not as a like like a hit on his whiteness, but instead as uh, he found his place in the story of God uh, and he saw some benefit to fully engaging that. Um, and so, yeah. And so my deal would be, uh, man, let's become all things to all people that we might reach them. But Paul never stopped being uh, who he was. Uh, he was fully who he was. He made adjustments in his communication. He made adjustments in his, um, in his practice 
so that he would not create um, hindrances for the gospel work. Um, right. So yeah, that, that's, that's my deal. No, that's good, man. That's that's actually because the ethnic the ethnic, you know, kind of representation is beautiful. And that's part of Daniel and I's hope is to to really kind of amplify that on this show and like give that give that voice. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that it was more a missional direction. Like, is there an emphasis that would shift? You know, whereas like I realize like when you're talking now, you're talking to the greater body of evangelicalism, you're saying this voice needs to be heard. And I agree with you. Like when I left my position at NAM, when we replaced my role to train the Western U.S., we're like has to be a Latin guy, like can't be a white dude over that role. Like that's just a no brainer. And all of us sat around and said, that's a no brainer. Needs to be a, a, a Spanish speaking Latino leader that represents the Western, the Southwest United States. And, um, and I think, you know, we're seeing those positive moves, but, um, but yeah, I just, you know, it, it was more a missional emphasis rather than an identity. You know what I'm saying? Cause I yeah. think your identity, that's just part of beautiful. That's just beautiful who God made you in that, you know, you never lose that. Right. Like yeah. I would, no matter where I was, I was always going to be this American white dude, but, um, but that, that really helped me understand. I appreciate that brother. Yeah. yeah and, and on that part on just the, the missional aspect of it, I would say that uh, in America um, it is uh, extremely important for the Latino American to um, recover and maintain uh, it's distinct, his, his or her distinctiveness in that the numbers are just growing by leaps and bounds. Uh, and so at this point in America, we need more Latino American leaders, period. Whether we're talking about politics, mm -hmm. uh, no matter where we're talking about in society right now, and no matter where we find ourselves, we need more Latino leaders everywhere. If we are to say that we are truly being intentional in our missiology, um, and our strategies for reaching America. America now, uh, the, the biggest minority group in America is the Latino. Um, therefore, nice. if we're going to be, uh, if we're going to strategize, if uh, we're truly committed to a missiology uh, that deals directly with uh, the people here, then we have to recover and maintain a Latino American leadership. Nice. And just to piggyback on that, I think that both of you guys are making a, a great point. I think there's a difference between full-on assimilation, which none of us would say, you know, um, is going to be beneficial to the identity piece. Yeah. But there's the incarnational in learning. That's the missiological, missional piece where, um, yeah, we know segregation can't work. We know assimilation, if you lose yourself, then that's mm. a form of oppression. But incarnation is, is this willingness, volunteering of becoming like the other so that you might win them. And I think that's a that's a dynamic skill that we all have to learn. And, you know, for the first time in a long time, a lot of whites are having to learn that in their own backyard. Yeah, they don't amen. have to travel, you know, uh, to, to, to experience that, you know, and I think that's so important. And then the flip side of this, though, David, and I want to ask you, because you lead a multi-ethnic uh, church in South Florida there. I think it's so important that you lead a church that can have this conversation seamlessly, you know, because we have multi-ethnic churches where this is a very awkward conversation. Oh. You know, I mean, it's just, it's, it's a very advanced conversation for some people. But the, part of the reason why you can have this is, I mean, you, I mean, you're 
your intellectual like ability to have this is there, but you're also immersed in this because you're in South Florida, and this is just naturally how you all you all talk. You know, uh, I'm in and I'm in a part of Chicago where you know uh, my neighborhood is 78 percent uh, Hispanic, and so these conversations just kind of they just happen at the ground level. Help us to think through like the importance of raising up church planters, future church pastors that can lead multi-ethnic churches that can have this high level of conversation. Um, Because that's a little bit different than, I think, um, a multi-ethnic church that's led by a a white person. Um, And we need more of those. Like, hear me, we need more of those. We need more multi-ethnic churches led by African Americans and Asians. But this is a high-level conversation that you get to form the theology of a local congregation. Like, that you're, you're, you're doing that on the ground level. And it's actually going to shape a generation for how they engage the culture around them. Talk about the importance of that, um, because I know, like, I mean, in our conversations, like, I mean, you're Orthodox, Evangelical, you're not Marxist, you're not liberal, none of that stuff, right? Uh, you're, you're Reformed, you're, you know, so, but, but this is like, this is the conversation, you know, or oh, the gospel is a conversation, obviously. But this is a seamless conversation that you have. It's forming the local theology, and it's impacting the way that you're developing leaders. Talk about that. Yeah, so um, uh, when, when we talk about movements um, and we talk about multi-ethnic movement, I was around um, when um, uh, Loritz, um, Brian Loritz, uh, started out the Kainos movement. And although it feels like, it feels like so many years ago, but it's just, you know, five, six years ago or whatnot, um, we, we, we started this multi-ethnic movement and uh, we began to um, see different expressions of multi-ethnic churches pop up and left and the right. Uh, but, but for the most part, we were just doing, we were doing everything that we had always been doing just with different colors in leadership roles, right? Um, and, and so what ended up happening with the multi-ethnic movement or in a, in a lot of spaces, the multi-ethnic movement is that um, those churches uh, they grew um, oftentimes with uh, a, a bunch of white people who we love dearly. Uh, shout out to all my white brothers and sisters, uh, um, right? <laughs> so, so uh, they grew a bunch, um, but they didn't really make a dent or grow too much um, in our local neighborhoods. They were, they, they, were, they were coming, but they weren't affecting the cultures of our local neighborhoods, et cetera, because those multi-ethnic movements um, were not true to the areas that they were planted um, oftentimes, and they weren't true to anyone's ethnic identity. I, I think the worst thing we could have done is start these churches with a bunch of different colors uh, where we stripped everyone of their culture. Um, and, and that's often what we got in the name of multi-ethnicity. And so as I lead um, multi-ethnic movement, um, uh, specifically a urban minority-led um, multi-ethnic movement, I think what we're, what we're finding and what we're going for is to make sure that the people that we put in place and the people that we're mobilizing are confident in their distinctiveness that they're confident in their cultural norms and realities, and that they can tell the story of God uh, through the lens of that reality. Uh, Justo Gonzalez uh, wrote a book uh, entitled Santa Biblia, where he talks about the Bible through the lens or the perspective of the Latino American. Um, and, so, and so that's what I'm going for. Uh, and that's what uh, so many of my 
uh, the people that I esteem, that I'm influenced by, uh, and so many movement leaders are going for right now is, what does it look like to um, have a multi-ethnic movement that is led from the margins, that is led from people uh, of color, that is led by immigrants, uh, and that is led by second and third generation uh, Latino Americans for the sake of seeing these multi-ethnic movements speak to the reality of the people um, and not strip them from their ethnic realities. And so what that's looked like for us is we, we've had to change the scorecard. I've been talking a lot lately about the scorecard and changing the scorecard, talking a lot lately about um, unprofessionalizing um, discipleship and disciple makers. One of the things I'm real excited about uh, is that on this Good Friday, um, we are having, uh, we're going through in the Spanish church or the Latin church, we talk about las siete palabras. Um, and so every Good Friday, we get a, a preacher or preachers to come up and go through the final seven statements of the cross and all that kind of stuff. And so we kind of continued that heritage. Um, but the way we're going about that now is that we've like mobilized seven people from our congregation who are not professional preachers, who are not the professional ministers, if you would, but who love Jesus, who are committed to his cause and who understand the gospel. Um, and they're going to be the ones preaching. I'm not even preaching. I'm having them preach. They're going to lead that thing. They're going to share because I believe that if that so long as our ministers or the people we uh, multiply or send out have to be professionals, man, we are never going to reach um, this country uh, for the kingdom or for the gospel of Christ. Um, uh, Daniel, you just put out a new article talking about uh, the numbers and how many people we need to reach by 2050 uh, to see uh, just the kingdom continue to advance in such a way where we don't become um, an afterthought. I think if we're going to do that, we got to change the scorecard. We, we have to begin to mobilize uh, and multiply disciple makers who are not professional, but who love Jesus. And I believe that in a Browning America, uh, we need to see that happen from the margins. It needs to be a uh, uh, urban minority led multi-ethnic movement that would be very different from the movements we have today. Um, yeah. That's good. It's really good, man. Thanks so much for that. Um, it's funny, man. I want to give a little shout out to Armando Brazza, the guy that I, I referenced earlier who came up um, as we chatted and he was talking about, you know, kind of the distinctives of um, Hispanic churches, Hispanic speaking, yada, yada, um, you know, Latino. I mean, all the different types. He said, look, he goes, the thing is exactly what you're talking about, about less professional discipleship, um, you know, not as glued to programs, you know, just empowering of the average believer is what's happening. And I was like, man, that sounds so much uh, more like in line with, with what fires me up and what gets me excited and what's more first century, to be honest. I mean, I, I think that's kind of the thread that I'm seeing is it's more like stuff in the book of Acts. So my hope is that we can um, learn more and more from the Latino church in future. Um, but uh, our last question is what are kind of the hopes, dreams, and aspirations of the next generation Latino American church leaders? Man, thanks for asking that, Peyton. Um, 
uh, as Daniel alluded to earlier, uh, Latino Americans are not monolithic. Um, so, so I'll speak specifically to my dreams, if you would, and the vision I'm casting to those in my sphere of influence, if that's okay with you all. Um, and, and so I'm dreaming of seeing my Latino American brethren and sisters liberated from the captivity of American evangel uh, evangelicalism's ways of being. What I mean by that is that I'm dreaming of the Latino American um, leader, church planter, um, man, disciple maker, be able to freely um, mobilize people to the work of God in, in the way that God has moved us and created us and the way he shaped us. One of the, one of the things that would have to happen for that to happen is that I need my Latino American brothers and sisters to kind of, to kind of again, um, rediscover our Christian heritage um, and the work that's been done before us. I think uh, as a Latino American, I can say this uh, confidently, man, we have forgotten where we've come from. We've, we have uh, neglected our heritage in terms of the church. A lot of uh, our people have no clue or haven't really considered uh, what the church, uh, the Latin American church has had to do to even get to where it's at today. Um, and so like, I'm dreaming of what would it look like for my La Latino American brothers and sisters to begin a more Instituto Biblicos. I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of an Instituto Biblico, but in our Latino American communities, man, we didn't have access to seminaries. We, we didn't have the money for it. We didn't have the resources and there weren't any institutions um, uh, that, that we had to send our people to in that way. And so what our people did was they began these institutes or these Bible institutes where they taught the average layperson uh, the essential doctrines of the faith and ministry nuts and bolts so that they can do the work of mission and discipleship. I I'm dreaming of seeing our people begin to, um, to, to kind of take back on those practices um, and then I'm dreaming of seeing um, the different spaces in American evangelicalism begin to uh, platform, recognize, uh, and resource more Latino American um, leaders and expressions of faith. Um, that, that's what I'm dreaming of. I'm, I'm dreaming of what would it look like for the American church um, to begin to recognize and respect our differences and not only respect, but celebrate our differences uh, in such a way that we would begin to prioritize uh, each other. And, and, and that's a dream right now, because unfortunately, again, even though the Latino American is the largest um, uh, minority group in our country, we've yet uh, to uh, prioritize the Latino American voice. And so I'm dreaming of a day where even in light of our missiological frameworks, even in light of uh, the reality of our demographics here in the States, we would uh, mobilize, uh, prioritize, and resource Latino Americans to reach this country and the world for the glory of God and the good of neighbor. Mm. So good, man. I, man, I... If we can support that dream, I mean, we we want to we want to be a part of that. And I know I know Peyton said we were asking the last question, but I wanted to follow up because I just think it's so important. Um, 
David, for us to like bring this really like to the ground, and you know, this we're we're talking about front lines, and we're dealing with issues that pastors are thinking through every day. Um, and um, I, I would like for you to address two things really quickly as we wrap up here. Is I would like you to address um, uh, you know emerging Latino American leaders. You know, as a as a as an older brother, you know somebody who's. I mean, you're you're so young. You know, how old Peyton Jones. You know how old David Rose is. David, tell us how old you are. Oh gosh, uh, on a good day, I, I don't even remember. I, I'm 31. Third, turning 32 now in May. <laughs> you just made Peyton feel real old. Oh, oh I always feel real old. You just made me feel older. And oh, at 31, you can't forget anything, man, because at yeah. my age, you forget everything. Man, listen, yeah. church planting, uh, this world is, I live in dog years, man. I feel like. That's true. That's eight. true. Which, by the way, a couple of people are asking for David Rose's information. I think um, Brooks is going to drop uh, his website, both his church and his ministry website there, so you can uh, reach out to them. But, David, I, I really want uh, to give you an opportunity, because you're not just speaking to those listening live. People will come back and listen to this, and they'll share it out. But for those uh, Latino American leaders who, you know, they, they've been holding for a long time, they feel like, I can't be in this tense space where I can't be myself and lead the way that I like to lead. Um, and so they might just like, you know, go out and do their own thing. Maybe that's what they need to do. Or, you know, some of them are thinking, you know what? I mean, I can't, I, this, this American evangelicalism, that armor is too heavy for me. I need to sh shed it. Can you speak to those who have that tension? And then on the flip side of that, for those of us who uh, work uh, predominantly, you know, in uh, white spaces, but then we have the, you know, the ethnic ministries, the Hispanic ministries and the Hispanic director and speak to those who are currently overseeing, you know, this kind of siloed, segregated way of thinking about doing ministry and how can they better integrate leadership? So two audiences as we close here, one, the emerging leader, um, you know, what would you mentor them in? And then secondly, as the institutional leader, how can they create a better space for these emerging leaders to, to serve and lead? Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I would say and that I would, um, yeah, that I, that I would share and that I do share with uh, emerging Latino American leaders uh, is, is, again, this idea of regaining or recovering our distinctiveness for the way it showcases the glory of God in the multi-ethnic church of God. It's important um, for my uh, Latino American brothers and sisters to enter in and live fully into our distinctiveness and our story, because our distinctiveness and our story, um, it, it, it sheds light on God's creativity and uh, the beauty of his splendor and radiance in the world. And so, and so here's what I want my Latino brothers and sisters to do. I want us to begin to uh, learn again uh, from our OG, our older brothers and sisters in the faith who have come before us. Uh, we need to get acquainted with Padilla. Uh, we need to get acquainted with Justo Gonzalez. We need to get acquainted with the work of Juan Martinez. Uh, man, listen, you need to know uh, Dr. Liz Rios. You, you got to get connected um, with Robert Guerrero. Uh, you got you to get to know Michael Carrion, uh, my brother Rich Rivera, etc. There are so many people who have been doing this work, even my mm. brother D.A. Horton, who have been doing this work uh, with our cultural or ethnic lens who can speak, who, who have put a framework 
to our ethnic story. Um, and, and listen, you and I have a story too. That's what I want to say, Daniel, to my Latino American brothers and sisters. Um, we have a story too. And our story brings again about uh, the beauty of Christ. So there's a black story and I love my black brothers and sisters and there's a white story and I love mm. my white brothers and sisters and there's an Asian story and I love my Asian brothers and sisters, but there too is a story of Latino Americans uh, that God is using and that he desires to use to expand uh, the reach of the uh, people of God here. I believe, um, and, and listen, I got my bias. I believe uh, that one of God's um, most powerful tools to reach this uh, next wave of Americans is the Latino American church. I don't see any way around that as the demographics continue to grow, as our, uh, our young people continue to become more and more Latino, as America continues to brown, God is raising up Latino Americans um, to lead the way. Um, Here, here's here's what would be rad, brother. I think this would be cool if you put a podcast or someone put a podcast together as like a crash course for white guys like me on this. Man, I'd come running. I'd sign up to that in a heartbeat. I'm working and, on uh, it, brother. Come on, do it. You have your new mission. Let's go. Yeah, man. I'm your first follower. Oh gosh, <laughs> listen. Uh, and just just to if I can get a second, I'd also say to those institutional leaders, man. Um, of our different uh, Hispanic, you know, movements and all that in denominations. Now, I, I would say, I would say, hey, listen, um, if, if you can't recover your distinctiveness, I'm sorry, y'all, um, uh, if this, um, if this rubs somebody the wrong way, if you can't regain your distinctiveness and enter more fully into who God has created you to be, then you may need to consider going elsewhere because God wants to use the Latino American in this season to reach this country. Our missiology, our strategies, um, our movements depend on uh, humble, uh, Holy Ghost-filled, uh, gospel-centered Latino Americans leading the way, charting a way forward. If you have to um, sacrifice your Latinidad for the sake of being a part of an institution, um, that institution is not seeking uh, to really reach this changing demographic. You need to reconsider, have some good, humble conversations about why your Latinidad is so important to the task at hand. And, and if we can't do that, well, let's figure out how for the sake of the kingdom of God, the unity of all things, uh, we, can, um, we can do that in different spaces. That's all I got. Awesome, man. Uh, David, thanks for uh, so much for hopping on. And really, we love to have you back, brother, because I think there's so much more that we could unpack here. So uh, thanks for hanging on there. Thanks for all the questions and the input that came in there. And um, I just want to let you know that Exponential has got a couple things coming up soon. Uh, we got some roundtables. We got a summit that's happening uh, very soon. I want to make sure that you also go to sentence2.org uh, and uh, check out some of the research that we talked about today. And then I'm super excited because uh, Peyton Jones's book, Church Plantology, came out. And Peyton, if I understand this correctly, you and I, we're going to be on the show next week talking a little bit about it. Hey, so, I'm holding it in my hand right now. I got a copy with your name on it, brother. But right. uh, yeah, man, absolutely. Yeah, thanks for that.
looking forward to having that discussion too. So, hey, God bless you all. Thanks for signing on today.